Hello and welcome to the Writer's Way podcast. I'm your host, Justin DeMarco. You're listening to episode 14, Tall Men, Short Shorts, with Lee Monfil. Lee is the author of Tall Men, Short Shorts, which not only chronicles the 1969 NBA Finals between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics, but it gives us an inside look at what life was like as an up-and-coming sports reporter at the time. Lee is a three-time New York Times bestselling author, former columnist at the Boston Globe, and a former senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He has also written books about Muhammad Ali, Evil Knievel, Babe Ruth, and Dale Earnhardt. Talk about some big names. Lee currently lives and writes in Boston. He was kind enough to take the time to talk to us about his storied career and his latest book, Tall Men, Short Shorts. So thanks so much for coming on the Writer's Way podcast, Lee. And you really timed the release of your book perfectly. You would almost think it was planned. Well, yeah, actually, we we wanted it to come out a little earlier um, for Father's Day. But I I guess there's like a printing backup, they said. I don't know. Um, But it's amazing that it comes out in on July 13th, and it's still in the middle of the NBA Finals. You know, I mean, that's that's how wacky everything has become. Which worked out perfectly. As you said, the NBA Finals just finished. The Milwaukee Bucks, after 50 years, just won another championship. So what was your take on this year's Finals? I thought the games were very good. Um, uh, national attention seemed to be down. Ratings seemed to be down. Uh, I guess because they're from Phoenix and and Milwaukee and not, you know, big coastal cities. But I I thought the basketball was very interesting. Um, How how one team would seem to be much superior, and then all of a sudden the next game would not be superior at all, would be inferior. And and then the last couple of games were just terrific, both of them, you know. Um, I thought thought they were great to watch it and great that – I think the NBA had had become kind of stagnant in that the big favorite would always win, you know, wherever LeBron James was, would be the champion. And this was very refreshing that that two teams that that nobody really thought was going to win. And speaking about LeBron James kind of always being the champion in 1969, the year that you're writing about, it was always Bill Russell. Bill Russell, whatever team he was on, it was always the Celtics. They were going to be the champions. So what was it like for you to be around Bill Russell? Because you you wrote about it in the book in the sense of you're a professional, you have a job to do, but at the same time, you have somebody who you've seen has had such a storied career already, and he's kind of toward the end of his career. He was a player coach at that point. So what was that experience like for you as a first-year reporter getting thrown right into that? Yeah, I mean, the, the construct of the book kind of is, is my 77-year-old self looking at my 25-year-old self um, kind of latching on to the the tag end of this dynasty. Uh you know, they, they were winning championships when I was in junior high school. I mean, Bill Russell and, and all of this and it, 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 his career had gone through through, you know, me growing up, basically. And now he's 35 and I'm 25 and and I'm there to cover him every day. And, and he's rich and famous. And I'm just you know, I just appeared out of the out of nowhere to 
to kind of be a nag on him. And it was an, an, an interesting relationship. If I was him, I, I wouldn't have paid much attention to me either. And, uh, <laughs> so he handled exactly the way I would have handled it, you know, but he, it, it was odd in that, that it, like maybe once every three weeks or something, I would catch him and, and he would be in a reflective mood and, and we would talk for 10 or 15 minutes. And I would say, well, that's it. Bill and I were close, you know, and then the next day I would show up and he would walk right by me when I said, Hey, Bill. Um, so it, it, it was interesting that way. And, and it, it's interesting that, that you would go to an NBA locker room today and, and you probably wouldn't even get in the locker room. They would bring people out and they'd stand in on a stage in front of ads for Dunkin' Donuts and uh, the local bank and, and talk to a whole bunch of people with microphones and stuff. I would go to practice some days and, and I would be the only reporter who would be there. Um, and, and I would kind of root for other reporters to come to take the conversational load off me, you know, if, if somebody was there that, that Bill Russell knew and liked some older guy, um, Bill would talk and I would stand next to him and listen. But if there was no one there, I had to go, excuse me, Bill, you know, and, and the other players were, were pretty much uniformly good. Um, uh, but I, I didn't have to bother them every day. Whereas Russell is since he was the coach as well as the, the, the star player, uh, it was, it was incumbent on me to talk to him every day. And can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you, someone who was a fan, seeing what the Celtics were doing, the legendary Boston Celtics who just would not lose, and then having to go up and do your job and ask questions to Bill Russell? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd been a fan and, and you know, and, and a little rec league basketball player and, and stuff like that. And I kind of didn't know how it all operated so much. Um, and, and, and it was a, m a much more casual operation then than it is now. I mean, now they have every, every game, they have the shoot around where, where the players come in the afternoon. And that didn't happen. They had no shoot around guys just hung around and watched movies and, and, and found, you know, go collect antiques or something. But, uh, but back, but but, and I think that whole shoot around idea was to give guys something to do during the day. Uh, that that was an, invented for that. So it, it was just, it was a lot more casual than I thought. You know, uh, Celtics had six plays with variations off the six plays, and and it, it was basic basketball. Uh, I one of the first games I covered, I, I, I had a seat near the visitors bench. And uh, the coach was a guy named Donis Butcher, and, and Dave Bing was the star. And at the end of a timeout, Dave Bing turned around and said real fast, he said, well, well, who do you want me to guard? And Donis Butcher said, take the man who has you, which is what you would always do at the YMCA. You know, you <laughs> take the man who has you. And I said, this is the NBA, take the man who has you. And, and now I suppose... They would have all kinds of algorithms and stuff to to analyze it all. But it comes down to taking the man who has you because it's a lot easier 
to take him and find him because he's right next to you when you when you switch from offense to defense. So um, it, it was interesting. It was interesting to see all that and to and to talk with the guys and the the guys weren't making a lot of money. You know, um, I, I think I wasn't making much money and I think I was making as much as a couple of guys on the bench, you know, uh, it, it was a big day. And, and it, like the playoff pool wasn't a whole lot of money, but they really needed that money and, and they fought for it. Uh, it was interesting. The Boston Globe was as big as it got in Boston. So you were basically the source, though. You were the one who was getting this information out there to the majority of the people. I believe you said it was something around 500,000 during the week. And then on the weekend, on the Sunday papers, about a million people reading. Uh, when people handed off the newspaper, I thought that was interesting that you added that information in there. Well, they, that's that's information they would add to, they, they would give to advertisers, you know, like the pass around factor or whatever it was. Well, yeah, it was, uh, which you don't realize, uh, I mean, it, it sometimes seems like we're talking about George Washington and his wooden teeth, you know, <laughs> all so long ago. But uh, the television was not a big factor. Um, of, of the seven games in the series, only two of them were on television in Boston, and and, and, uh, and only three of them were on, were on television in, in Los Angeles because they, they had the home blackout rule at the time where you, you, you blacked out the local community to, to preserve the gate, uh, the, the, the actual player uh, gate at the, at the arena. Um, so there was, there was very little television. The, the radio announcers were, were both iconic figures, Johnny Most in Boston and Chick Hearn in, in Los Angeles. And they were, they were as, as important as any of the players. They they brought they brought the games home, and that's what people listened to. Or they read they read the story from the guy in the Boston Globe who who uh, was twenty five years old and was trying to figure it all out. It was an interesting situation. Speaking of figuring it all out, you were able to figure it all out on the fly because you had to. That was really your only option. And you talked about the time being different. Uh, you joked about George Washington with the wooden teeth. And people were smoking on planes at the time, which that was something that just popped out uh, when I was reading. And I was like, wow, like that's something that would never happen today. And there were so many types of experiences. You talked about uh, Bill Russell kind of just being in like the... Uh, like a sauna or like a warm bath or something like that after practice answering questions. And like you said, a lot of times reporters can't even get in the locker room today and you're in that intimate setting, able to ask questions. You think about LeBron James going back to him and he had the decision, which was this huge over the top broadcast to let people know where he decided he was going to go in free agency. So players have the ability today to be able to share their story or get information that they want out there. So as a reporter, were you kind of aware of that, that you were the person who controlled a lot of the narrative and a lot of what got out to the public? Yes and no. I think, I think, you know, newspapers, all, newspapers are all deadlines. And, and if you don't get your story in, there's just a big hole of white space. 
So um, I think terror is, is the great motivator. You know, what, what am I going to do? Is it going to be newsy and entertaining? You know, how can I make it better? It, 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 it was a constant struggle of, of fighting deadlines and, and trying to figure it all out. Um, you, you say there was, there was smoking on airplanes and people smoke. I was smoking, you know, I was, I was pounding away, you know, I was smoking those lucky strikes like mom and dad did, you know, uh, it, 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 I wasn't going to rat you out there, Lee. <laughs> oh no, it's all right. You know, it's a time, uh, but, but, but the, it, it was just a different time. I mean, I mean, Russell being a player coach, was kind of an unbelievable thing. He had no assistant coaches, nothing, you know, um, the players were, were his assistant coaches. He would say, what do you think about such and such? And, and he had the trainer, the trainer um, had to figure out travel arrangements and all of that stuff and handle the keys at the hotel, who got rooms, the players roomed together, everybody except Russell roomed together. They all had roommates. Uh, I mean, they wouldn't you, you used to, and you used to share cabs with the players to the hotel or wherever you were staying, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, no, the, the the trainer would order up, you know, five cabs, you know, and uh, and they they would always try and have a rookie in each cab, so the rookie would be stuck with paying for the cab, <laughs> and then the rookie would have to track down the trainer to get the money back for paying for the cab. You know, it was it, it, it was like. It was like a neighborhood team or, or, or a travel team, you know, like you, you, you go with your kids these days and you you go with the travel team. You go from Massachusetts to Long Island to see some lacrosse thing. And and that's the same way, you know, uh, except you're probably staying in a better hotel <laughs> than the Celtics were staying in. Uh, it, it, it was a lot smaller the, the Celtics people come to me about the book that the Celtics had had four people in their front office. Um, they, they, they had Red Arbach, who was the general manager now. Um, they had Mary Whalen, who was his, his uh, secretary, and Howie McHugh, who was the PR guy. And uh, they, they had a young guy, Jeff Cohen, who was the son of, of Red's friend, and they gave him that the title assistant general manager, but he had to go out for coffee and stuff. I mean, if you, if you wanted to buy a Celtics season ticket, you could go to the Celtics office and Red Arbach would take you around and show you where your seats would be inside the garden because their offices were right at the garden. And so, you know, here's this guy who'd won all these championships taking you to say, you know, you'd be here pretty good here in section 312 seats. Uh, <laughs> Five and seven, you know, just such a different time. And you were talking about the inspiration that you were always trying to find when you were writing, that you were trying to write beautiful prose, that you weren't just necessarily looking for the game story. You were looking for the story that people would be able to connect with as well. So who are some of your sports writing heroes and can you talk a little bit about kind of the difference when you were starting out with this kind of new journalism that you talk about versus the old way that journalism or in sports journalism yeah, was kind I mean, of written? Yeah, I mean, the old way was was the five questions, who, what, where, when, how. 
um, in a new way, supposedly, new journalism was kind of a phrase coined by, I, I don't know, somebody about, uh, about like, like Truman Capote and Cold Blood. Uh, uh, Gay Talese had, had, had a book about, uh, had, had a story about Frank Sinatra has a cold. And, and they, there were just these stories that they became like um, written almost like fiction but nonfiction, nonfiction fiction or something. And it, it, it relied on details and incidentals and the, the who, what, why, when, where you would try to cover, you would try to cover that for sure, but, but you would also try to have some writing around it, you know? And, uh, and, and so that was what, what was the flavor at that time. Um, the, the, the New York Herald Tribune was filled with, Jimmy Breslin and people like that that were they were writing these uh, these kind of new journalism stories, and and I I thought of myself as a, as a new journalist I guess or I wanted to be a new journalist, and in the sports writing they called them chipmunks because uh, Jimmy Cannon who was an old time writer for the the Journal the New York Journal American and he he was a great sports writer and he got aggravated by all these new journalism kind of people asking every question. The famous question was Ralph Terry won a game in the World Series. And uh, he mentioned something about his, uh, his wife was feeding the baby the night before the game and somebody said bottle or breast. And, and, that, and so Jimmy Cannon said, they, they prattle around, they ask all these questions like chipmunk, chipmunks, they sound like chipmunks. So I, I kind of, Thought I'd I'd be a chipmunk, uh, and, and my big idol was Jim Murray, who worked in Los Angeles, um, and he was like the master of of the simile and the metaphor, and 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 he, and he had a he had a he looked at sports with with a sense of humor to it, you know it was serious, but but come on, you know there, there's a lot of stuff that's funny there, and I like that idea um, of the funny part, so I. That those were all the things that were kind of crashing through my head as as the deadlines came what came came along and I had to fill up the white space and trying to trying to do it that way and and in the book I I, I have more, a lot of stories from the series and I kind of point out places where I might have tried to do something and might have missed or I, I don't know it's uh, it's interesting a guy sent me a thing said. You had your voice when, when when you were 25 years old. He said, "This is another sports race." It took me a while to figure out my voice, and I I don't think I, I my voice was trying to sound like Jim Murray. I was like a like a bargain basement Jim Murray voice. Uh, but then you, you you say that, and I think anything you do, you you try and copy someone you really like if you. If you're playing the guitar, you're trying to play like Carlos Santana or somebody. And then all of a sudden, because you don't play exactly like Carlos Santana, they say, well, that that's your style. And you didn't even know you had a style. So I, I, I was trying to be Jim Murray, and, and but but I was doing it differently. And people would say, oh, you have a good style. Well, I, I didn't even know I had a style. You had a great style. And your sense of humor is something that really comes across. Uh, in your book, uh, which is 
basically sports writing, sports reporting, and also memoir, because we're getting a look at your life. So you really are bridging that gap between the fiction realm uh, and also the nonfiction, because this is factual. These are things that actually happened. When you were looking back at your stories, were you able to almost visualize where you were in the moment, depending on when you were reading a story like, oh, I was in this crappy hotel, uh, I had this tight deadline or things like that? Kind of, but but it's also, I mean, these stories were like 52 years ago and, and they were written by this other person, 25 years old. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, some of them, yeah, I'd read them for the first, it was like I was reading some other person, you know, and I, I didn't remember anything. Um, I remembered a couple of them. But um, but it, it, it's an interesting thing, and and researching it was interesting too because I, I was dealing with all these Globe files and stuff, and you know uh, all the the reporters that, that were working there at that time, the sports writers then, I mean that whole level of people ab above me, I mean they're all dead, but. But going back and, and reading this stuff every day, they were all alive again, you know? And and I was, you know, there's Jack Craig and I can see him sitting at his desk and I, I, I know what he had for lunch and there's so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so and, -so and, and it, it was really kind of nice to do that, actually. Something that really stood out too was your experiences being out when you were not working when you were maybe with another reporter, another writer, and you were getting a drink or you were having dinner. Uh, and sometimes you were forced to be with these people, whether you wanted to be or not, because you had to work. So what was that experience like for you being 25 years old, kind of finding your identity, finding who you are as a writer, as a professional, and then maybe having a cranky writer or reporter who you're with, and you can be in some uncomfortable situations sometimes, as you wrote about in the book. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a competitive business. You know, there there were there were three newspapers in Boston at the time, and and two of them, the Globe and and the Herald, had um, morning and afternoon editions, and. It, it, the, all these guys, they, they were all older than I was, you know, and the, the ones I was closest to, they, they were 35. They were the same age as Bill Russell. And then there were older, older guys. Um, and the older, older guys were, were interesting in that that like most of them hadn't gone to college. Um, they they'd had to handle World War Two. They'd either uh, it either been 4F or or they'd been to World War Two. And, you know, as the young guy, I think always as the young guy, you, you have a mixture of overconfidence and, and really bottom line fear, I think, at the same time. But you're always saying, well, these old guys, it, let, let's get them out of the way. This, this is the Deadwood, you know. Let's move the Deadwood out and go into the future. And, and I myself might happen to be the future. And so you're your observations on their work and, and, and their, their thoughts and stuff are, are colored by, by your age, you know, and then, and then you, you work for about 35, 40 years. And then all of a sudden they're saying, well, look at this Montville guy. He's the Deadwood. Get him out of here. You know, he's, he, you know, it's, it's, it's become, 
it's become the Twitterverse, you know? Uh, what, what's he know about all of this stuff? And, and, and there's something to be said for that too. Well, the media industry has changed so much. I went to college, I went to Emerson College in Boston in 2005. Uh, that was my first year. And I remember in 2007, the Boston Globe was in jeopardy of going under. And I was thinking like, what am I doing? I was a broadcast journalism major. I had been writing for a local paper on Long Island prior and I was making good money. I was amazed. I was getting $100 an article, something like that. And then I'm seeing before my eyes the way that maybe the sports reporting and this career journalism isn't a good idea. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make money. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's a very good career if you want to have a romantic relationship because you're going to be on the road. You're not going to be around much when you're writing. You really don't want any interruptions. Um, so can you kind of talk about when you first started versus maybe your experience and what you saw and kind of how things change. Because if you get in and you're the new journalism guy, you know, it's the new time, you're the chipmunk. And then you're seeing new things happening all the time while you're there. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole long thing. Um, yeah. If, if, I, if you would call me up and you wanted advice when you were at Emerson College, I would have said, become a venture capitalist, you know? <laughs> you, you go around town, if you, if you go, to, go down by the ocean and see all the big yachts, see how many <laughs> sports writers have big yachts and how many venture capitalists have big yachts, you know? Smarten up. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it, the, the whole new journalism thing, I think, has gone out the window. Um, it, the idea of style and, and similes and metaphors and stuff, there's some of it. I mean, there's a little bit of long-form journalism, but but the the whole gear now is to be instantaneous and 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 to have it on 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 the newsfeed. You know, um, I, I mean, I, I find myself I I don't read like I used to read. I don't think I think it you read shorter stuff and and the print paper. When you get the print paper, you say I I saw all that Thursday. You know. Uh, and it, it's 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 all a, it's all a, a tough balancing thing. I I had always looked forward to a point where I could say, uh, you know, well here I am, the old timer, and here's what you should do, kid. Here's how, how you should do it. But I I, I don't have that. I I, I played golf at, at this thing a couple of weeks ago, and and I I was in a cart with this guy Pete Thamel. And he's a young guy and he's, he's like maybe 40 and, and he works for, you know, Yahoo sports and, and he's very well respected. He worked for the New York times. He worked for sports illustrate. And he said, what advice would you give? This was like, we're coming up to the 18th hall. He said, what advice would you give to someone my age? You know? And I said, I don't have any advice at all. You know, um, you know, be true to yourself, but, but I, I, I don't know how you do what you do. I I would say video is, is like the future that that everything seems to video seems to be a few things. A couple of books that I've written have had screen screenplays written and stuff, and I've talked with the screen screenplay guys, a couple of successful guys. And and to me that's very interesting that 
to put it all together like that. Uh, Would you ever want to write your own screenplay? I don't know how. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you'd do it. I suppose you would learn. I suppose I go, go for the Jim Murray approach. You know, I just copy, copy. You know, a screenplay. That's exactly but, it. That's yeah. all you'd have to do. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. form. It's the same way that you learned how to yeah. tell this story. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe I mean, this one. Maybe this will be the book that you write the screenplay on yourself. Yeah, sure. I, I could write the screenplay. I could star in it. That would be great. You yeah. would, well, you wouldn't be the bright young man. We'd have to get you someone else for that. But yeah, makeup. You know, I've seen Planet of the Apes. You know, they they can do anything in Hollywood. I was uh, thinking you could be the voiceover guy if there's the uh, the narrator who's telling the story like inside the head. That's right. I I, I did the audio book for this book, um, and I, I'd never done the audio uh, an audio book before. I mean. I, I have what I think is is a somewhat unique voice. It's kept me out of, out of the big time forever. Um, but but they said, yeah, sure. Why don't you do the audio book? And, and, and it was an interesting thing to do. Uh, you know, especially especially here that I, I don't encounter too much stuff that's really different from anything I've done before. But this was really different going for, for four straight days and sitting in a closet and talking and it was good. Uh, well, someone who's very observant, what was your takeaway from that experience? They, they, they kind of stitch it all together. You know, um, you know, I, I was worried that I couldn't say the right things, but, but they, if you just, a phrase is off, they'll say, just repeat, you know, um, for the money. And I just say for the money. And then they stitch it all together. It's a, it's an interesting process. Uh, you know, and, and a guy had once told me about television that in television, you're supposed to, it's a cool medium and you're supposed to speak out and kind of project yourself, you know, almost be shouting, you know? And so I thought that reading, reading the, the, the book on the audio book, that it would be like television, but, but they kept saying, no, you have to modulate and come down because you're just like talking to someone else while they're driving the car and, and so that was interesting. And that, yeah, that's what I kind of like about podcasts too, is that it's just a conversation um, because being a broadcast journalism major, a hundred percent, you're taught to project, uh, you're taught to speak a certain way. And a lot of people have that hello and welcome to the writer's way podcast voice. And it just doesn't seem real. It's not real. You know, it's, it's, something that I'm putting on because I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm copying a sports sense, a sports center anchor that I like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to a point in the book where I, I quote the announcers, you know, Johnny most from Boston and, uh, and Chick Hearn from Los Angeles. And, and I came to it and everybody in Boston at that time had a Johnny most impression, you know, he, he talked. And so all of a sudden I'm talking like Johnny most and I'm trying and I, I don't know how that plays at all. You know, Hearn <laughs> had kind of a staccato delivery and he, he, you know, he, he, he just spit things out and they tried that a little bit. And God knows some, somebody's going to drive off the road. Listen, no, <laughs> no, no, I, no. I, I tell people they've, they've, they've sent the audio book straight to Guantanamo <laughs> no. to get the, to get the prisoners to talk, you know? Um, you're tough on yourself, Lee. Yeah, but no, I, I think it's okay. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I think it's nice. And, and 
in the way they the way they record stuff, I think they they do a fine job. It'll be interesting to listen to. Is someone you know completely overwhelmed with the personal statement and supplemental essay portion of the college application process? If so, Ivy and Quill College Admission Essay Consulting and Editing Services is the answer. Our team has reviewed over more than 20,000 essays since 2015, and our students are regularly accepted into the top 100 U.S. universities and colleges. For more information, visit us at ivyandquill.com. And don't forget to check out our free resources on our site's IQ blog section. You can also watch our informational videos on our Ivy and Quill YouTube channel to learn more about what we do. Hearing you talk about the way that you wrote stories is really interesting to me because when I was doing, when I was doing, I was the sports editor at the Berkeley Beacon, uh, which is the Emerson paper there. And I don't know, do you know Rick Kahn? He was a reporter at the Boston Globe. He was our advisor. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. So he was, yeah, he was wonderful. He was a great advisor, but what we learned in classes was kind of, you know, the pyramid, the writing pyramid of get the most important information, uh-huh. go down the pyramid. And there wasn't a lot of fluff or fun things to write about. And Rick kind of encouraged that in terms of if you're reporting and you're doing a story and you're talking about how busy an athlete is, then show what the athlete is doing, what the student athlete is doing. Like he wanted us to be able to get across, okay, we get that the person is busy. You could say the person is busy. So I remember there was this one article where I did that and it was a little, it was like a side graphic to the article showing the schedule of the student athlete and how crazy it was because she had an internship. Uh, It was division three. So it's different. Like you still have practices, you still have everything, but it's not like a D one athlete who maybe has as much support. Um, So that was something that was very helpful for me, but talking about kind of newspapers today and maybe even media today in terms of what's out there, is it a little disheartening almost to see what has happened to journalism or sports reporting and sports journalism? Or do you think it's kind of cool that players are able to be their own voice today? I think I vote for disheartening. Um, I I once, I did, I, I should add this, I, I once was a guest speaker at some class at Emerson and all I remember is we went into this uh, lecture hall and they had this these shelves which had a bunch of computers on them, like uh, uh, personal computers. And every kid would take a computer and go sit at his, at his seat. And then the teacher and I started talking and every kid was, you know, was playing Mario Brothers <laughs> on the computer or something. You know, nobody was really listening to us. And I said... I'm not going to do this again. (laughs) So if you were playing Mario Brothers, you missed a lot of good stuff, I was saying. It it wasn't me. I I guarantee you I was paying attention. And I was always the one that I would ask the question, because what was important to me at the time, um, the college, my college girlfriend, college ex-girlfriend, I was having difficulty because I wanted to be reporting and I was reporting and I was doing broadcast TV stuff. So I'd be out. Maybe I'd miss a party on a Saturday night or something like that. And trying to explain like, no, like I'm not blowing you off. Like I'm working, like I have to do something. 
Um, so the question that I would usually ask the sports writers or a reporter is, you know, how do you kind of manage your relationships? And like a lot of times they would look at me funny and the professor knew that was something like I was interested in and would kind of give the look like he's not putting you on, like he's seriously asking. And a lot of times they would all say the same thing, which is like, I'm divorced. My co-anchor is divorced. Uh, this producer is divorced. Like basically yeah. they were their family um, and they were spending all of their time together. Uh, so that was something that I, you know, I always kind of saw and I still struggle with today, you know, even being a writer in terms of how are you able to give yourself or so much of yourself to another person when you have so much that is inside of you that you want to do. And you're also looking out externally in terms of your craft and what you want to accomplish. I think that's a big, I mean, I'm divorced twice. So, so, the, so, so I'm probably not the expert on telling, telling you this about, you can right? tell, you can tell from experience then help but, me out here, Lee. Yeah. But I, you know, I've done all these biographies of all these different kind of famous athletes and, and successful people. They're all divorced. I mean, it, it, I think it, you get to get to a situation where I'm going to do my career or I'm going to, you know, be home and mow the lawn every night at, at, at five o'clock. And, and and I think it's a it's a it's a hard problem. I think it's a, a tough problem for uh, for everybody and everybody has to figure out their own answer. Um, uh, I don't know. It, it is a, a hard problem. Uh, okay. Well, I'll take you off the hot seat, Lee. Let's go back to. I used to listen to WERS. Is it was WERS Emerson exactly. Radio? Yeah. I mean, the music. I mean, I still listen to it. It 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 gives me some contemporary music, you know. And there'll be some nineteen-year-old kid to say, and now we're going to play a record by Bob Dylan. <laughs> Dylan, Dylan, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a cool thing. <laughs> so speaking of that, in terms of seeing the way that maybe the approach has changed, um, the way that sports writing, the way that sports reporting has changed, even um, you were talking about uh, Pete. Um, Pete Thamel. Like you were talking about him and his experience and like he's coming to you for advice and he's successful. He's doing well. So what is it like to kind of see something that is, it's basically gone in a sense? Well, you know, I, I kind of came back a little bit. There was a, you know, there, there was an online thing um, called sports on earth a few years ago. And, and so I came back and, and I said, this will be a vehicle. I can cover a few games, go to a few Patriot games and stuff. And, and I did. And it's just so different. The the press box is so different. Everybody is on their little machine and, and their phone and they're tweeting everything and nobody's talking. It's like like being at an insurance agency or, or more than an insurance agency, some some place where they make robocalls or something. <laughs> and there's there's no conversation. There's nothing. And and when I was there, there'd be all conversation, but and what type of conversation? Well, nobody makes a joke about anything because instead of making the joke where the guy next to you might hear it and put it on his Twitter machine, you type out your own little joke. So there's no byplay of like, you know, who's what, you know, 
well, who Alex Verdugo, Verdugo is, you know, and, and Chris Sale. And I, nobody's talking about any of that. They're just, and, and I sat next to a guy and, 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 and I knew him. He, he'd worked at Sports Illustrated. And I kept saying things. And finally, he said, you just got to shut up. I, I got I to do all this stuff, you know. And so I just shut up and I sat there like Joe the zombie, you know, and, and, and it's, it's different. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't trade this for, for the stuff I had of, of, you know, guys, guys that just made fun of stuff all the time, you know? Well, and even the access, that was something that when I was starting out or trying to figure out, like, is this a career that I really want to do? I was lucky enough to report at the Beijing Olympics in 2008 through Emerson College. And I remember thinking, this is the highest level. This is sports at its finest. We were covering track and field. So I was able to report on Usain Bolt before he was major. You know, I was interviewing him on the practice track and you could see he was so confident. He was somebody who knew that he was going to succeed and he was a great interview. And then there were all the Chinese volunteers who were told not to get autographs and not to bother the athletes. When they saw Usain Bolt, they bolted toward him. So I remember okay. saying, do you want to walk and talk? So he goes, yes. And we left the practice track and kind of were at the gate outside. So there was a little privacy. I don't know if that conversation would be, well, with COVID, it definitely can't take place because now with the protocols and everything like that, that's not happening. But just with sports reporting, I remember being at the Olympics. And part of it too, is you have so many athletes who have been training their entire life for this moment. It's every four years. So it's amazing when everything is going well, but let's say that you have the shot putter who just has a bad day or gets disqualified. And you have to ask why that person failed in that moment. And you need to get a soundbite. You need to get a quote. You need to get something from that person. And I think that's where I kind of realized, like, I don't want to be doing this. Yeah. No, I mean, there's hard parts. And what's her name? The tennis player. Um, Osaka. Osaka. Yeah. Naomi Osaka. No, I mean, yeah. I understand what she's saying. I mean, that, that, that there's a lot of nitwit questions and stupid things that, that happen in these press conferences, especially international, you know, where, where it's second language or third language for, for people. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know. You said the practice track. I was in Seoul, Korea, and and I was walking with Mitch Albom. Now that's that's dropping a literary name for you, right there. I have I have uh, my own little beef with him because I co-wrote a musical with my high school English teacher. It was called Hockey the Musical. So it was at the Toronto Fringe Festival. That was in two thousand eight as well. That was one of my like career years. So I don't know. Maybe a few years later, somebody sends me an article. And Mitch Album wrote Hockey the Musical, same name, same everything. And I was really? like, that bastard. <laughs> yeah. And his, wow. I, I bet his was more successful. He's got a much bigger backing. I would bet it. I would bet so. <laughs> we were we were walking and we we had been we've been playing basketball actually with a, with a few guys. And we were walking and we stumbled upon the practice track where it was somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And there were all these elite athletes were out there running, you know, I mean, these guys from the Ivory Coast were just gliding along the track. Their feet never touched the ground. And they're all, and, and Mitch Albom says to me, 
well, we got to go out there and run a lap with these people. And, and to me, that would be like, I don't know, you know, desecrating the Sistine Chapel or something. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And he went down there and he, he's not a heavy guy, but he went out there and ran with these people. And he looked like a, like a Mack truck coming around, you know, at the same speed and the same width of, you know, and I said, well, I guess, I guess that's how you become Mitch and, and not myself, you know, Tuesdays are worry, you know? Uh, so that. Well, I think that's, a, I think that's really interesting because that's exactly it, which is what we're taught in school or what we're taught in general in terms of reporting is observe, you know, don't make yourself the story. Don't literally put yourself in the story. Yeah, but but it was interesting to observe him. You know, I mean, that, that's what I remember the most is that he, he's the ordinary guy out there with with these these athletes that that, that are all just you know looking like gods. Uh, and uh, but it, but it's funny. The Olympics is a hard thing to cover. I think you know it's a there's always issues about who you can talk to and where you can talk to them, and there's a lot of pushing and shoving and. And it was difficult too, uh, because in China, we weren't, the agreement that we had, uh, we weren't allowed to basically write our own blogs, our own stories, really. We were able to for the school website, but we couldn't really share our experiences, which kind of made it a little bit difficult too, uh, because you're there and we were part of the Olympic News Service. So our job was to basically get the sources for, let's say there's uh, you know, an athlete, as you know, from Virginia or something like that. And the local paper isn't sending anyone. So we'll get the quotes and then the local reporter will be able to write the story based on the quotes and fill in the gaps just from watching, which I guess, if you think about what's going on with COVID now, where people are having conversations, like we're having them on zoom, or they're watching feeds of things like that. And then hearing athletes kind of answering questions via zoom, it is a little bit similar now, which is a little strange. Yeah. It's all strict. It's yeah. all falling apart. It's, it's all, it's all falling apart. The chipmunks are not happy. Well, I think that's when I realized, though, that this, you know, just reporting and having that opportunity, it, I just, I needed something else for me personally. Um, and I didn't see a lot of opportunity or even the access like you're talking about, too, the way that you were able to be with Bill Russell. And like, even if it was a weird experience that you'd interview him, he knows you, you're having a good conversation. And then the next day he's acting like he doesn't know you, like you have that memory, you have that experience. And there was something that I thought was so interesting and kind of so amazing for a young writer to come up with the idea. And I, I know you said it happened at some other newspapers, but can you talk a little bit about how you were the one who got Bill Russell to write his experience during those finals, during that run for the Boston Globe? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was, I was the bright young man and I was trying to figure out different ways that, that our team, the Boston Globe would be better than the other teams, you know, and the other teams had had the year before they'd had, uh, they'd had as told to guys that, 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 that would talk, that would talk, um, one of them had Red Auerbach, would, would, had a, a so-called column, but the Boston Globe had nobody. And I said, we should have somebody. And, and I thought of Russell. And I went to my boss and I said, we should have somebody. And he said, 
well, there's nobody, you know, who would do it. And I said, well, what about Bill Russell? And, and like this light bulb went on over his head and he said, Bill Russell, you think Bill Russell would do it, you know, because Russell had been cantankerous in, in Boston. And, and, and I said, well, I could ask him. And, and I, I asked him and, uh, he asked how much it would be, and it was it was like two hundred bucks a column, and he said, "Yeah, I'll do that." And and I think I don't know if we shook hands or if I just went back and said, "Bill, do it," and that was it. And I, I one of my old bosses read the book, and he, he he sent the thing to me. He said, "That's unbelievable that that happened." You know, he was he came later. This boss, he said, "You know, there'd be like seventeen lawyers involved now." You know, and it would be a lot more than 200 bucks a column. And, you know, but that's, that's how base level the whole, everything was at that time. And you were talking about the 200 bucks a column, just to put it in perspective, how much were you making out a week that time? I was making about 200 bucks a week. You know? Exactly. So he's doing, yeah. Well, one yeah, column. So, I mean, it sounds like it was terrible money, but, but, but it, it wasn't that bad. You know, he was making as much for, for one column as a, and after one game, he, he, he was all upset and he just said, the, I have nothing to say today or something. He, he would phone this into a, a kid at a dictaphone and he just said, I, I have nothing to say about this. And I, to this day, wonder if he got the 200 bucks for just saying I have nothing. To say. <laughs> I bet he did. He better. He, he said he had nothing to say. That was the column. But he, you know, he, he came back for the column after that. So he, they must have kept the money coming. I don't know. <laughs> Or they, or they told him, if you want the money, yeah, you better, you better give us something better than I have nothing to say for the next column. Yeah, yeah. So looking back on your career, this had to be something that was probably cathartic for you. Uh, and which also during COVID, you wrote most of, right? Most of, if not all of this, to even have that sense of purpose too, right? And to be able to share your story with others. Yeah, I mean, COVID was... COVID was kind of great for me and then it kept me in the house and doing this stuff. Uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of COVID, you know, from especially musicians, you know, I mean, all, all those musicians haven't been able to do anything for like a year, year and a half. And, and there must be just songs kicking around everywhere that, that, that these people are ready to, to put out. Uh, it, it's interesting, but but it, it helped get me through COVID, you know, going back and, you know, newspapers.com. You can go back and read all the papers from, from back then and, and just kind of walking around that world uh, when I couldn't walk around the real world. It was, it was kind of nice. It was a good thing to do. I had a smile on my face when I read your book. Did you have a smile on your face when you were writing it? Because it really came across, it really came through that you were open, you were vulnerable, you were sharing stories that even if it didn't look the best for you, you were being true. You were giving, this is the information. These are the details, the best I can remember, or at least that I can remember, and I'm going to let it rip. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it's interesting that, that like a lot of the stuff is um, kind of tangential to, to what's going on in the basketball. And, um, I've always kind of wanted to to write some kind of memoirish stuff. When you get to my age, you, you start telling stories 
and all of a sudden you realize that the other people in the stories aren't with us any longer. And you say, I'm the only one that knows this story. When I'm not here, there'll be nobody else to tell the story because those people are gone. And, uh, and, and so you say, well, maybe I should get a couple of them down on, on paper. And so that was it. I, I would come, I would come to write something about sports illustrated and I would tell about my own experiences in sports illustrated. I wrote about California and, and, and some other experiences I had in California after, after the, these playoffs, uh, it, it, you know, California is just so different from Boston and the whole, I don't know, the whole mindset of the two places. So it, it, it was fun to bring out these, these stories and, and, and tell them. And, and I might have more. I don't know. We'll see. Well, Lee, thank you for sharing. Thank you for taking the time today with this podcast. And I know you mentioned the Twitterverse before, and I know you are on Twitter. So where can people find you if they want to connect? Um, what's your Twitter handle? I'm just at Lee Montville, you know. Um, uh, that's L-E-I-G-H, not L-E-E. Um, yeah, I'm just at Lee Montville. And, and sure, send me a message. And, uh, you know, I need followers. We all need followers. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, we definitely do. Um, and is there any, is there anywhere else that they can find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook also, and uh, I'm walking around Medfield, Massachusetts uh, every once in a while. And uh, I'm at a golf course in Bellingham. <laughs> big, are you a big golfer? I play golf. I, I wouldn't call myself a big golfer. I, you know, I play golf a little bit. It's, it's like golf is the last bastion of athletics. I think, you know, <laughs> When you can't do anything else, you play golf and, and it, it feels like a sport, you know, I mean, you sweat and, and you have all the accoutrements, you know, you can curse with it with other guys and, and do all this stuff. And, and it's hard to master for sure. Um, so it's nice. It's okay. Okay. And before we let you go, Lee, I just have to ask, what would your advice be? Because we've asked a couple of times, what would your final parting advice be for anybody who wants to be a writer or particularly a sports writer? I think that the advice most writers would give to anybody is to be a reader. I mean, to, to read and, and, and like I say, to find somebody who you really, really like and see how they look, be a reader, but then kind of deconstruct what you've read and see how they did it and, and, what you liked about what they did and then try and play a few of those riffs on your own guitar, you know, and, and, and kind of go from there. And uh, God knows where your writing's going to wind up these days and, and how it's all going to be. But, but I, the, the world is always going to need somebody to write stuff out, you know, nothing can be off the cuff all the time. And, and I don't think they have a computer figured out yet, but I think they probably will. That, that they can write great pose, prose. That will probably be the next thing that will happen. But Lee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Go out, get Tall Men Short Shorts, the 1969 NBA Finals, Wilt, Russ, Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you. Buy it for yourself and buy it for your family. Every member. The dog will like it too. <laughs> thank you. That's perfect. Thanks, Lee. A big thank you to Lee Monfil for coming on the Writer's Way podcast and sharing his story with us. I really enjoyed reading his book and had a smile on my face pretty much the whole time that I was reading it, like I said. 
So go out to pick up a copy of Lee's book, Tall Men, Short Shorts, today. You can also follow Lee on Twitter at Lee Monfil. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star rating for me and write a review on Apple Podcast. That's the only way other people will get to hear these episodes and it'll help to keep this podcast going. So thank you very much for that. Until next time, I'm Justin DeMarco, and this has been another episode of The Writer's Way Podcast. I don't